to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. I wonder if we can take up where we left off last Sunday evening. I spoke to several people this week about that service, people who hadn't been here, and told them that it was shouting time at the Quality Inn last Sunday night. If you didn't love the chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Esther, you don't love anything that's good. Because if you couldn't see God there and how He works, then you won't see Him at all. Esther 5, 6, and 7 revealed to us the judgment of the Lord and how He executes it. And doesn't Psalm 9, 16 tell us the Lord is known by the judgment which He executeth? And it was all there last Sunday evening. I had the opportunity yesterday to take one of our seven-year-old children and grill them in front of their parents and Sherry and myself about some of the intricate details of the book of Esther. The child gave an almost, I mean so close, let's just forget the word almost, perfect recounting of the intricate little details that I've tried to pull out of the book of Esther. I was impressed. And shame on the parents, they hadn't even reviewed the book with the child that week. And the sermon that I had preached on Sunday evening, not too much shame. I mean, we don't do it every week, but it's something we ought to aim for. My point is that a seven-year-old remembered from last Sunday the details of what we covered. And I hope that you do also. Let's quickly make a chapter-by-chapter -chapter review of the first seven chapters of Esther. Remember, there are Jews that have been recovered from Babylon who are now back at Jerusalem attempting to rebuild the temple. There are other Jews who decided to remain in the Persian Empire. Shushan is the capital of the Persian Empire, and some of them are there. Chapter 1 introduces to us the king of Persia, King Ahasuerus, who is married to a woman named Vashti, who is the queen of Persia. He has a 187-day feast there in Shushan the palace to show the glory of his kingdom. On the last day of that feast, he asks his beautiful wife to come forth to show her beauty to all of the rulers of Persia. She refuses to come. The advice given to him by his counselors is to totally demote her and put her away from being his queen and to come no more before him. So she's gone, and the king is without a queen. So we come to chapter 2. In chapter 2, the counselors again tell the king how he can find a queen. He should hold a beauty contest with the winner taking all, and those who come in second and third taking concubinage, being a concubine of the king, kept in the second house of the women, maintained by him for the rest of their lives, unable to be married to anyone else, and unless he asks for them by name, unable to even see the king. So Esther is taken along with the other beautiful, fair, young virgins in the land and comes before the king, and the Lord moves the heart of King Ahasuerus, according to verse 17, to love her above all the women. And she is made the queen of Persia. Now the last three verses of chapter 2 tell us that Mordecai, who was her cousin and who had raised this Jewish woman, this young, beautiful Jewish woman, discovered a plot to kill, assassinate King Ahasuerus. And he tells the king by way of Esther 
an inquisition was made of the conspiracy, and sure enough, these two men were going to have the king killed, and so they in turn are hung by the king, and Mordecai saves the king's life, although the king doesn't reward Mordecai at that point. We come to chapter 3. We introduce a new character, the character Haman, a wicked man, an Amalekite, one of the enemies of the Jews. Now Haman was number two in the kingdom, and he expected to be worshipped as a divine being. And all the other Persians there in Shushan would fall down and do him reverence. But Mordecai would not, because Mordecai was a Jew, and a Jew, as a Christian, will worship no man as God. So Mordecai, Haman, excuse me, hated Mordecai the Jew, who would not worship him. So Haman makes a plan to destroy not only Mordecai, he thought that not enough. I'll destroy all the Jews. He thought it too low for him just to kill Mordecai. He said, I'll kill that whole race of people. So he comes to King Ahasuerus and asks for a decree to be written that on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year, all the Jews in all the provinces, and there were 127 provinces of the Persian Empire, should be killed. How did they select the 13th day of the 12th month? By casting the lot, like we would cast dice, maybe, or die today. What was the lot called in the Persian language? Pur, P-U-R. I love those three letters, Pur. We'll have reason to see them again. So they cast Pur, and it came to the 13th day of the 12th month, when all the Jews would be destroyed. Now, chapter 4 is the plan of Mordecai and Esther on what they're going to do about it. Mordecai is a Jew, Esther's a Jew. What are they going to do for themselves and for the rest of the Jews? Well, Mordecai tells Esther to go in before King Ahasuerus and beg of him mercy. And she says, did you forget? Basically, she said, did you forget that anyone who goes in before the king without an invitation will be killed unless he holds out the golden scepter that he holds in his right hand? See, kings back then demanded respect, and they received respect. You didn't walk into the king and think you were going to get an audience. You didn't go have a sit-down strike in the king's court. You'd sit down and you'd never rise if you tried that. Kings were kings back then. But Esther finally agrees after Mordecai persuades her that with prayer and fasting, she'd go into the king. So chapter 5, and this is where we took up last Sunday evening, chapter 5 is what I call the timing of Esther. Chapter 5 is where Esther does go into the king, and he says, Esther, she, he receives her. He says, Esther, I'll give you anything you want, any petition you have, even to the half of my kingdom. And she says, well, my petition is this. I want you to come to a banquet of wine that I've prepared in a few hours. He says, I'll be there. She says, I want Haman there too. So Haman and King Ahasuerus come to the banquet of wine, and the king says for the second time, I'll give you anything you want, Queen Esther. Whatever petition you have, I'll give you to half the kingdom. And she said, my petition is this. I'm going to prepare a banquet of wine tomorrow. I want you and Haman to come to that. Well, now the king's really getting serious here. Queen Esther must have something really weighing on her mind to take two banquets to finally tell the king what she wanted. Well, in chapter 6, this is chapter 5 that we were just dealing with, the first banquet of wine. After the banquet of wine, Haman really thinks he's something. 
that Queen Esther invited him to a banquet, no other man but himself and the king. He goes home, and he's so upset about Mordecai, he can't stand it. It's tearing him up. He's happy that he's so important in the Persian Empire. He's angry because Mordecai was there in the king's gate when he walked home and didn't bow to him. It's tearing him up. His, his wise men and his wife tell him, why don't you build a gallows in your backyard? A gallows is a large wooden structure on which you hang men. Why don't you build a gallows this afternoon and tomorrow go to the king and ask permission to get Mordecai out of the way early. And then you can kill the rest of the Jews in the 13th day of the 12th month. He says, great idea. He was very happy, it tells us in verse 14 of chapter 5. In chapter 6, and I call this the humor of Esther, in chapter 6, Haman gets up early in the morning. I mean, he couldn't sleep that night very much because he was going to go to the king and get permission to hang Mordecai. So he goes into the king very early in the morning. Well, let's back up to verse 1 of chapter 6. King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep that night. For some reason, King Ahasuerus could not sleep that night. God kept him awake. And instead of calling for Esther, instead of calling for a concubine to give him a massage, instead of calling for a band to play a lullaby, instead of calling for bread and warm milk, instead of calling for some sleeping pills, he goes and reads the chronicles of the kings of Persia. He sits down with all the records of the Persian Empire and starts thumbing through them in the middle of the night with his servants. And lo and behold, the Lord directs him to the place where Mordecai saved his life. How many years earlier? Five years earlier. Mordecai had saved his life. He found that spot. Now, do you know how many records there would be between one point in time and five years earlier? Five years of the congressional record would probably fill this room. Anyway, he's reading the records and he finds out about Mordecai and he says, what did I do to reward Mordecai? The man saved my life. The servant said, you didn't do anything, king. And he says, well, I ought to do something. Who's in here? Who's in the court? Well, at the moment he said, who's in the court? Who had got out of bed early that morning to come and see the king to hang Mordecai? Haman, God's enemy. So Haman comes walking in and says, I'm here. And the king says, Haman, what, would, what do you think I ought to do to the man that I delight in? How can I honor the man that I delight in? And Haman's head swells up till it's four feet wide. And he says, you ought to take your robes off and put them on that man. You ought to take your crown off and put it on that man. Put him on your horse. Have him led through the streets of Shushan by one of your noble princes saying, this is the man that the king wants to honor. Because it tells us that Haman thought in his heart that couldn't be anybody else but me. I've got to be the man the king wants to honor. And the king said, great idea. Go lead Mordecai through the streets. Go lead Mordecai through the streets. Well, there goes Haman. Can you, I, like I said last Sunday night, I, just, I can hardly imagine, and I try to imagine, you know, boosting Mordecai up into the saddle, putting the robes on him, putting the crown on him, leading that horse through the street. How sincere do you think he was speaking? This is the man the king delights to honor. He was sincere because the king had said, don't you let anything fail of your wonderful idea, Haman. Go do it all. And that's chapter 6. Isn't chapter 6 wonderful? Amen. Bless you, people. You love a God that can do that to his enemies? Amen. That's why this book is written. How did Haman go home? 
he kept his motorcycle helmet on backwards. I mean, it tells us that he went home in verse 13 having his head covered. I mean, he put a bag over his head and snuck home. And he goes home to have his wife stroke him and build his ego back up. And his wife sets down and says, Listen, if you've begun to fall and Mordecai is being honored by the king, you don't stand a chance. <laughs> now, that doesn't exactly build a man up. And while his wife and wise men give him that good news that he doesn't stand a chance, two servants arrive from King Ahasuerus and Esther. It's time for the banquet of wine with Esther. Listen, this man's day started off so well. He was so happy. He got out of bed early. He went into the king. He was going to hang Mordecai that day. Then he was going to go to the banquet of wine. It started well. Then he had to lead Mordecai through the streets. It took a turn for the worse. When he had to lead Mordecai through the streets, and now he's going to the banquet of wine in Friends chapter 7, it gets worse. <laughs> it goes from bad to worse. Chapter 7, they're at the third banquet of wine. In verse 2, King Ahasuerus says to Esther, for the third time he says, Whatever you want, I will do for you. Whatever petition you have, I'll give you to the half of my kingdom. And Esther asks him in verse 3, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, can you issue the word to save my life? Can you save my life at my request? For we are sold, verse 4 says, I and my people to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. If we'd been just sold into captivity, I wouldn't have bothered you. But because it's my life and the life of all my people, I'm begging of you my life. Now, the king had been built up for something over 24 hours. And when his queen lays on him a bomb like this, he wants to know what in the world she's talking about, that she's been sold to death and her people. He doesn't know who those people are yet, just her people. Then the king said in verse 5, and I've asked some of our children during the week, what were the two questions the king asked? Who is he? And where is he? Because he was angry. King Ahasuerus could get mad. We know that from chapter 1. He could get very mad, chapter 1 tells us. Who is he? And where is he? Let me get my hands on that man. Anyone who wants to take the life of my queen? And Esther said in verse 6, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. Can you imagine? Oh, no. Haman says, you know, when he, when he realizes he's putting facts together as fast as he can, I mean, you, you can know that he's paying attention to any conversation going on between the king and the queen. And as he begins to realize that Esther is a Jew, oh, no, did I blow it this time. He's afraid before the king and the queen. Now, the, queen, the king is so mad by this stage, it says in verse 7, that he arose from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. I mean, he had to go out and get some fresh air, shake his head, and try to relax. He didn't want to strangle a man in the queen's banquet of wine. He went outside. Now, Haman is nervous because Haman says he could see that evil was determined against him. How did he know evil was determined? Nothing's been said yet. The look on the face of King Ahasuerus. The look on the face of the king he knew well when he was angry because he had seen men before him hung and killed for less deeds than trying to kill the queen. 
The king steps outside and Haman knows it's all over unless Esther saves his life. So he falls down on his knees. Beside, we don't know exactly, but he falls down on her bed. They ate back then on couches called beds. You've seen pictures of it where they would recline on their sides while they ate at this banquet of wine. Now Haman, Esther's laying on her couch at this banquet of wine with the king and Haman, and Haman falls down. He could be on his knees at the edge of it, most likely, with his elbows up on the edge begging for his life. And the king walks back in and sees Haman on his wife's couch. And verse 8 says that the king said when he saw that, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? I mean, what's the man going to do now? Rape my wife in my own presence? And while he said those words, what did the wise chamberlains do? Put a bag over Haman's head. It was all over. I mean, when the king mocked you like that, it was all over. They covered, look at, look at verse 8, the last sentence. As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. As he said that, they just put the, the, black, the black little sack over his head because he was to die. Just by the look of his face and the word of the king. If the king was that displeased that he would mock someone like that, it was all over. And the chamberlains didn't stop there. They said, King, you know this morning we were reading about Mordecai who saved your life? Well, this same Haman has built some gallows in his backyard. He wants to hang Mordecai. And the king says, well, hang him on his own gallows. So what does verse 10 say? And Esther came in and fell before the king and said, please spare his life. I'm a loving Christian woman, and I wouldn't want to see a man die. Verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. King was happy. He was okay. As long as he could see a man dangling at the end of a rope, who had tried to take his queen's life. Now, I mentioned Queen Esther there and what that she didn't do a thing to save the life of Haman because that's going to become important. Shouldn't we learn something about a godly woman? Amen. There's going to be more coming this morning as we look, or this evening as we look at chapters 8 and 9. That brings us up to the first verse of chapter 8. The first verse of chapter 8 reads, On that day, what day? the day of the second banquet of wine, the day that Haman was hung on his own gallows, the day that Esther made known the fact that she was a Jew and her pe that she was in danger of being killed. On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jew's enemy, unto Esther the queen. What does that mean? Give the house unto the queen. You can do with them whatever you want. They wanted to destroy you, my queen, the, king, the queen of Persia. The house is yours to do whatever you want. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. When the discussion took place there at the banquet of wine about Mordecai saving the king's life and how that Haman was trying to kill Mordecai, Esther brought in another fact, he's my cousin. Now that helped Mordecai too, didn't it? Now the man saved the king's life and's the cousin of the queen and raised the queen from a child. And she loved Mordecai and obeyed him. She passes that information along to the king, and so the king takes Mordecai from sitting in the gate as one of the wise men of Shushan before the king. He was to be one of his right-hand men, as we'll see, a right-hand man, singular, before we get out of the book of Esther. Verse 2, And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. 
Before they led Haman out of the banquet of wine, the king did one thing to him. What was that? Break the ring finger of his left hand, or whatever hand he wore it on, taking the ring off. Can you, can you imagine King Ahasuerus gently sliding that ring off Haman's hand? He took the ring away from Haman, and now he's giving it to Mordecai. Haman, who was second in the kingdom, is now replaced by Mordecai. What a change. What a change. Now remember, just a few days, how many days? Three days earlier, Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes, screaming out loud in the middle of Shushan because he's about to be killed. He's, he's without hope but for confidence in God. Three days later, he's wearing the ring that Haman's ringing, what was wearing. Haman's dangling from a rope, and Mordecai is number two in the Persian Empire. Now, can God change things in a hurry? Amen. That's the God we worship. The king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman to Esther. Esther said, I don't, I don't need all the fun. Mordecai, you take care of the house of Haman. He, she gave Mordecai the authority over the house of Haman. Now, verses 3 through 6 describe Esther coming before the king again. Please remember something. Sometime before this, these events, the king had signed the decree. All the Jews in all the provinces in all the world were to be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. That commandment had gone forth in chapter 3. It went forth and the posts went out being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace. That decree was out. Now let me remind you something about the laws of the Persian Empire. When the king signed an executive order, when the king signed the decree and stamped it with his ring in wax to give the seal of the Persian Empire, could that law or order be changed? No. Could it be reversed? No. Let me prove that to you. This is an important point. This is an important point. Look at uh, chapter 1 and verse 19. Esther chapter 1 and verse 19. This is an important point to see why things occur the way they did. Now here are the wise men instructing the king on putting away Vashti. If it please the king... Let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered. Once it is written among the laws of the Medes and Persians, it could not be altered. Chapter 1 and verse 19. Look at chapter 3 and verse 12. Now here's the decree that went out to kill all the Jews. Then were the king's scribes called on the 13th day of the first month. So it's January or Nisan, as the Jews would have called it. And there was written, notice it's written, according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof and to every people after their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. Those laws that could not be altered included this decree that the Jews were to be killed. Now, Esther, let's go back to chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, we have the queen. Her life is spared. Mordecai is spared. Haman is now dead. 
Mordecai is number, the number two man in the kingdom, but she still has to ask the king for the lives of the Jews. They're still going to be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month. Nothing has changed relative to that decree at all. Verse 3, And Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Her life is spared, but now she's praying for the lives of all the Jews that will yet be killed. She's asking for a letter of reversal. She doesn't know the laws, the Medes and Persians, as well as she ought to. Cannot be reversed. And Ahasuerus will show you that in just a few verses. But let me tell you something about Esther here that you should be able to see. Notice that she fell down at his feet, according to verse 3, and with tears begged him. She besought him. As we studied the book of Ruth, so it is with the life of Esther. Esther understands submission to authority. Although the king had offered her three times anything she wanted, although the king had saved her life, although the king had killed Haman, although the king had promoted Mordecai, although the king had attended her two banquets of wine, notice the submission on the part of a wife and subject. She's both. She's queen, though. She's not just any subject. She is the queen and wife. She falls down and with tears begs him. Now notice how she begs in verse 5. This is after he holds out the scepter. See, as soon as he holds out the scepter, her life is free. She's not going to be killed for having come before the king again. But once the scepter is held out, notice she gives four conditions. She doesn't expect anything. She demands no rights. She doesn't tell the king, King, do you remember that Haman was going to kill all the Jews? And you know that wasn't fair, so you've got to reverse that law. Now, that sounds like how most people would talk today. Well, that's not how you talked in other generations. Right. Notice what she says in verse 5. I just find this interesting. Four conditions. One, if it please the king. Two, if I have found favor in his sight. Three, if the things seem right before the king. Four, if I be pleasing in his eyes. She's begging. Four times she says, if, 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 if. She doesn't at all say, I have this right. I am this. You owe me this. None of that. Queen Esther just didn't make it to be queen by the supernatural intervention of God. There was also wisdom. We've seen that employed all the way through this book. And here's that wisdom again. She knows her place and she verbalizes it. She begs the king. Listen, after all he's done for her, couldn't he, she just come up and give him a peck in the cheek and say, now, honey, can't you take care of this situation? You know it's not right. Now, would you go reverse this rule? She begs the king for his mercy. 
Sounds like Bathsheba with David. Sounds like Sarah with Abraham. Sounds like Abigail with David. And other women that we have described to us in the Word of God. She wants a letter of reversal written. Now let's deal with verses 7 through 14, in which King Ahasuerus does something for Esther and Mordecai against all those that are going to rise up on the 13th day of the 12th month to destroy the Jews. Verse 7, Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. Now, King Ahasuerus, if you can read between the lines here, I've already issued a decree that all the Jews are going to be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month. I signed it. I sealed it. It cannot be reversed. Esther asked for a letter of reversal. I cannot do it. But now King Ahasuerus knew the laws of Persia. He knew what he could do. And every supreme commander and chief and king and president ought to know things he can do to get something done when he needs to get something done. So what does he say? He says, Mordecai, you just sit down and write your own decree out over my name and we'll seal it with your ring. And that way you can accomplish what you need to. Verse 9. This is the longest verse in the Bible for those of you who like Bible trivia. Esther chapter 8 and verse 9. That's free of charge this morning. Back to the study of Esther. Verse 9. Who, how would you like to memorize this before next Sunday? Can I read it without a breath? Can I read it with less than five breaths? Esther 8, 9. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month. That is the month... Seven, on the three and twentieth day thereof, it's March 23rd in our reckoning, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews and to the lieutenants and the deputies and rulers of the provinces which are from India unto Ethiopia and hundred twenty and seven provinces unto every province according to the writing thereof and unto every people after their language and to the Jews according to their writing, that is Hebrew, and according to their language. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name, and sealed it with the king's ring, and sent letters by posts on horseback, and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together, and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely, upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people, and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment. And the decree was given at Shushan, the palace. King Ahasuerus solves the problem. Now let's look at the solution. 
The laws could not be reversed. But while the laws could not be reversed or altered or changed, as the book of Esther describes it, that doesn't mean you couldn't write a new law. Now, the decree is everyone who hates Jews on December 13th or Adar 13th, you come out and kill any Jew you can find in every province. We want them all killed, every one. We want to exterminate this people, and you can have all their possessions as compensation for killing them. That was the first decree. The second decree is on the 13th month, on the 13th day of December, or that is Adar 13th, all you Jews get ready and defend yourselves. And everyone that comes against you, you kill them first and take their spoil for a prey. Now that's not bad, is it? We've got two decrees out there now. All those who are true anti-Semites, true anti-Semites, true anti-Jew haters would come out of hiding and the Jews could destroy all their enemies in one swoop from India to Ethiopia. I think that's a rather wise move on the part of King Ahasuerus. He didn't issue a decree for all the Jews to move to Jerusalem and get the city built and defend themselves. He said, you just be ready, and anyone who exposes themselves on Adar 13, you kill them instead of them killing you. They could kill women and children, according to verse 11, young and old, small and great, and take the spoil for a prey. It had to occur on Adar 13, the same day that all the, the Jew haters and the followers of Haman would come out of hiding. Now, some of you may be wondering what dromedaries are in verse 10. We read that the post office back then didn't use little three-wheel golf carts with hoods over them or little jeeps but they used camels and mules and horses and dromedaries. A dromedary is simply a special breed of camel that was designed for running. How many of you ever seen a camel run? I mean, it's not the most coordinated animal in the world. And a dromedary, according to the dictionary, is a special breed of camel designed for running across desert wastes because you want the efficiency, the water efficiency of the camel but you want a little better movement than the average camel had. That's what a dromedary was. And now notice when these letters came out from the king, just like it probably is today, I hope, you know, your postman, when he gets out of his uh, little truck to come to your front door, doesn't walk very fast. And that was true in Persia. How do we know that? Because it tells us they moved faster when they had the king's letters. When it was the king's command and decree and they saw that seal, they moved. It says they were pressed. Verse 14, they were hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment. So this decree is being scattered from India to Ethiopia throughout the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. Verse 15, And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Now remember Shushan, just a few chapters earlier, was greatly perplexed when they saw that King Ahasuerus had given license to Haman to kill all the Jews. That was chapter 3 and verse 15. The city Shushan was perplexed. They couldn't understand wickedness in high places. Why Ahasuerus wanted to destroy a people he knew nothing about and who were guilty of no crime worthy of death. 
Now they're rejoicing. And isn't, doesn't the Bible tell us that men will rejoice when the righteous rule? Amen. Look at Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 2. I'll read it to you. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. When Haman and Ahasuerus were together, the people were mourning. They were perplexed, chapter 3. When Ahasuerus and Mordecai were working together, the people rejoiced. We ought to rejoice when we have good rulers. We ought to let them know that we're happy. We ought to celebrate. We ought to be thankful. And when we have evil rulers, we ought to mourn that fact and beg God for mercy upon our land. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 10 says this, When it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoiceth. And wasn't it going well now with the righteous? Mordecai was a righteous man. And when the wicked perish, there is shouting. You know, Christians today have a warped idea of when they ought to shout. I mean, they think they ought to shout when they go into a church and they've got some organist really humping away on the organ. That's shouting time. The Bible says there ought to be shouting when the wicked perish. When we can see visually Haman dangling on the end of his own rope, what ought we to do? Shout. When we see Haman walking with his head covered back to his house after leading Mordecai through the streets of Shushan, what ought we to do? Shout. When we see dead Egyptians waterlogged floating up on the shore of the Red Sea, what ought we to do if we're as godly as the woman Miriam? Shout. That's what the Bible says. Well, the city of Shushan shouting, rejoicing. They were glad. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. It's celebration time. 8R13 is going to be wonderful. We've only got 10 months to wait, 9 months to wait until 8R13, and we can come out and defend ourselves against all our enemies. And verse 17, And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. They celebrated. They threw a feast at the destruction of Haman and the fact that they were looking forward to another destruction in nine months of their enemies. Now look at the last sentence of chapter 8. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now wait a minute. Weren't there two decrees? There were two decrees issued. Why did the second one carry so much more weight? Well, there had been some changes at the White House. <laughs> Haman wasn't there. Mordecai was, and he was a Jew. That would help. But the joy and rejoicing and gladness. If we are a dead church with no joy in the Word of God, which characterizes so many churches, I mean, they come in, they sit down, they warm a seat, that's probably the warmest part of their body. Mm -hmm. There's probably more blood sitting there than between their ears activating their brain cells. They don't get excited about the Word of God. There's no joy and gladness and light and honor and shouting for the judgment of the wicked. See, when people are shouting for the judgment of the wicked, it puts men in terror. Because those are strange people. But they're God's people. And we ought to joy and rejoice and be glad and celebrate the God of the Bible, which we try to do. 
which we definitely try to do and will continue to try to do. Many of the people of the land became Jews. We'd like to see many of the Gentiles, the glory of the Gentiles, make up this church. And one way we do it is whenever they see us and whenever we talk to them and whenever they hear of us, they hear joy and rejoicing and gladness in the God of this Bible because we love Him. We love His Word. And we love what's described there from the first book to the last book. Chapter 9. Chapter 9. Two decrees have now hit the newspapers. Chapter 9. Now look at the first words. Now in the twelfth month. What does that mean? It's time for fireworks in the Persian Empire. And it is not the 4th of July. It's the twelfth month. That is the month Adar on the thirteenth day of the same, <laughs> Adar 13, the Holy Spirit's telling us, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them. Now, verb tenses are important in the Bible, are they not? Does God in his Bible ever argue from a verb tense? Yes, he does. I'm going to argue from a verb tense right here. It says the Jews hoped to have power over them. It does not say the Jews had hoped, which would be past perfect tense, which means the hope was gone. The enemies of the Jews were still planning to destroy the Jews. That's what that statement says. See, everything's in the past tense because it's history. But the way you would have said that the hope was gone and the Jews, because Mordecai was in charge now, weren't, the enemies of the Jews weren't going to do anything the grammar would have had to have been had hoped. But it doesn't say that. It says the day that the, Jews of the, that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them, the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurt. There were still, the enemies were still going to come out. And no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. Now, the Lord's done that before. He has sent the Israelites into battle with armies far outnumbering the Israelites, and God would just put a fear upon the enemies. Such a fear, they would run away. Such a fear, they would forget who they were fighting and kill the man next to them. And the Israelites would arrive at the camp, and lo, all the men are dead. The Lord does that. The Lord loves to send fear. And he says in Proverbs chapter 1, I will mock when their fear cometh. I will mock. What does that mean? To laugh at it when fear comes to the enemies of God. The Jews couldn't stand. The enemies of the Jews could not stand against the Jews because God put such great fear upon all the people. Verse 3, And all the rulers of the provinces, and the lieutenants, and the deputies, and officers of the king helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. They realized, uh, my review next month or next year is going to be done by Mordecai. I think I'm going to help the Jews. So everyone that came out of hiding were the lower, baser sort of men who were simply out to take the prey of the Jews and to get rid of them. Amalekites, Philistines, Edomites, Moabites, other enemies of the Jews. But all the rulers 
of the Persian Empire decided to throw in their hand with Mordecai for good reason. Verse 4, the good reason was this, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai waxed greater and greater. God blessed him just like God blessed Joseph in Egypt, greater and greater. God blessed him just like God blessed Daniel in Babylon, greater and greater, until Daniel was number one, until Joseph was number one. Now Mordecai is a great man in the Persian Empire. Verse 5, Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. And in Shushan the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. That's just in Shushan. And Parshandatha, let's start with verse 10. For those of you on the tape who missed the names of verses 7 through 9, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, slew they. But on the spoil laid they not their hand. On that day, the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace was brought before the king. It's 8 hour 13. The Jews prepare themselves in their homes. They've got shotguns loaded. They've got knives at their sides. They've pulled out the revolvers. They're ready. It wasn't shotguns and revolvers. You know that. It was swords and spears and slingshots and bows and arrows, clubs and frying pans, whatever they had. They were ready for the enemies of the Jews. And they killed 500 on 8 hour 13 and they killed the ten sons of Haman. Remember, King Ahasuerus had said to Esther, you've got his house, do whatever you want with it. Esther said, Mordecai, you take care of it. Now they took care of it. They killed the ten sons of Haman. And they brought in the number of those that were slain to the king to tell him. And this was the, was the report of the battle. 500 enemies have been killed, zero Jews. <laughs> Not bad. Why? God put his fear upon all the enemies of the Jews, so they were completely successful. Why didn't they know about the rest of the battle yet? That's out in the provinces. Remember, they've got to, they've got to feed those dromedaries and get them all wound up again to run back to Shushan so that, to bring the news. Verse 20, not verse 20, verse 12, excuse me. And the king said unto Esther the queen, the Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the palace and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? How do you think Ahasuerus was saying this? I believe it was much like we would watch a football game and the favorite team was winning. See, the king gets the message. They don't send messengers to queens in the Persian Empire. It comes to the king. The king's got the news. He calls Esther in. He's cheering away. He says, The Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the provinces? I mean, if it's that good here, what's it going to be like when the rest of the news gets in? Can you see? He wants to please the queen. Now what is thy petition? I mean, the king says, We've got 500 here. You know it's got to be good news coming in from out there. What else can I do for you? And it shall be granted thee. Well, what is thy request further? And it shall be done. Ahasuerus isn't a bad man. I mean, by the time we get here, he made a few mistakes in the book of Esther, but he's doing okay right here. He was getting into this, wasn't he? He had some zeal for protecting his queen and her people. Then said Esther, Now, women, 
Look at a godly woman. Look at a godly woman. Then said Esther, There has been enough bloodshed. If it please the king, let's stop the fighting so that no more are slain. I'm sick and tired of people dying. Look at Esther. Look at Esther. Then said Esther, If it please the king, could we have one more day? <laughs> you say, that's not nice. Those people who were dying were guilty of conspiracy against God's people right. simply because they were God's people. Right. You say, well, we ought to feel sorry for them. Where in the Word of God can you read that in either testament? Right. Then said Esther, if it please the king... Let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according unto this day's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. Just don't chop their heads off and put them in caskets. I want to see them moving. You know, their feet kicking at the end of a rope. God's people loving God's justice upon their enemies. And the king commanded it so to be done. And the decree was given at Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. For the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the fourteenth day also of the month Adar, and slew three hundred men at Shushan. But on the prey they laid not their hand. They didn't touch any of the assets. They didn't touch the things that were their enemies. But they took care of three hundred. Now how many is that in Shushan in Toto? 810. 500 the first day, 300 the second day, and 10 sons of Haman. They did that in the 13th and the 14th. Now, that second decree didn't go out to the rest of the provinces. They had to do it all in the 13th. They didn't have an extra quarter of play, as we sometimes have in a football game. Verse 16. But the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives, and had rest from their enemies, and slew of their foes seventy and five thousand. But they laid not their hands on the prey. On the thirteenth day of the month Adar, and on the fourteenth day of the same, rested they, and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Now while the Jews in Shushan are still playing on the fourteenth, the Jews in the rest of the provinces have taken the day off. They're rejoicing and having a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 18. But the Jews that were at Shushan assembled together on the thirteenth day thereof and on the fourteenth thereof. And on the fifteenth day of the same they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So what's happened is because the Jews in the province only went to work on the thirteenth, they celebrated on the fourteenth. Because the Jews in Shushan went to work on the 13th and the 14th, that is, they went, to, they went to the games, you know, the Shushan games. Defend your lives against the Persians. They celebrated on the 15th. So we've got the 13th was fighting everywhere. The 14th was a day of celebration in the provinces. The 15th was a day of celebration in Shushan the palace. Verse 19, Therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the fourteenth day of the month Adar a day of gladness and feasting and a good day and of sending portions one to another. 
All of you understand and know our position on the Roman Catholic, pagan, sun-worshipping holiday called Christ's Mass. A custom of that day has been the exchanging of gifts. Saturnalia, the worship day of the sun god Saturn, was observed by an exchanging of gifts. Now, the Bible talks of a couple gift exchanges. One's in the book of Revelation by the enemies of Christ's churches. The other is right here in the book of Esther, among some others who are mentioned, that are mentioned indirectly. But this is stated. They sent portions one to another. They had a gift exchange. What was the basis for their gift exchange? Extermination of their enemies. The judgment of God the justice of God, the glory of God, the providence of God in how he saved these Jews through these eight chapters that record for us God's dealings in that Persian Empire. They celebrated. We ought to have feasts and days of celebration and gladness and send portions one to another. And we do that when we have each other into our homes. But we ought to open the Bible and we ought to read some of the great things God has done for his people. And when you read the Word of God and look for celebration, and when you read the Psalms and look for celebration, as I read them to you every Lord's Day morning, what do we see? The judgment of God. What builds greater faith and greater hope in the face of all that we oppose in this world? What builds greater consolation and comfort for ourselves? And what builds greater fear of God than to be reminded of His judgments? That is what we ought to celebrate. They sent portions one to another. They had a day of gladness and feasting and a good day. Verse 20, And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, from India to Ethiopia, to establish this among them, that they should keep the fourteenth day of the month Adar and the fifteenth day of the same yearly as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning unto a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. An ex a gift exchange established annually from here on out for the Jews. On the fourteenth and the fifteenth days of the month, where they were to remember how their sorrow was turned to joy, how Mordecai was turned from sackcloth and ashes in the streets of Shushan to royal purple in the palace of Shushan, and how the Jews had been delivered from all their enemies. Verse 23, And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them, because Haman the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Wherefore, in this verse I'll close this morning, wherefore they called these days Purim. Purim. 
Wherefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Therefore, for all the words of this letter, and we'll stop off right there because that goes into verse 27. These two days were set aside as a perpetual feast day, a perpetual day of glad days of gladness and of exchanging portions with one another and of giving gifts to the poor, and they called these days Purim. Why did they call them Purim? Because Haman had picked the 13th day of the 12th month by casting the lot, which was called Pur. Now, I, I, I like people like that. They've got a sense of humor, don't they? And the Holy Spirit records that sense of humor for us. They picked the day in which they would destroy all the Jews by casting purr. So the Jews, when they had destroyed all their enemies on that same day, called the celebration Purim. May the Lord bless in teaching you, showing you, and reminding you that He will render recompense to His enemies. And He'll do it in the grandest style that men could ever imagine. And He'll do it that men will fear before Him, that men will shout before Him and rejoice with gladness. I teach you this whole book so that you will come to love this book from Genesis to Revelation, from Esther to Ruth, Ruth to Haggai to love this book, to see the judgments of God, to see how God operates, so that your spiritual mind, if you're a child of God, what the Bible calls the mind of Christ, the mind of the Lord, will be stimulated by what's here so that you'll think the way God thinks. And when you sit down to read the book at home, instead of it being drudgery, you'll ask, why did he do that? Like I've asked so many times as we've gone through the book of Esther thus far, I want you to love this book. This book ought not to be dry reading. You ought to sit down and read something like the book of Esther. You say, but I just can't take Chronicles. Listen, Chronicles are more stories like Esther. Read them. See how God operates. Make sure your heart matches up with what you read. Notice God's humor, the way He humiliates His enemies, His power, His wisdom, His tenderness toward His people, His giving of physical gifts like beauty to Esther how he can raise those who are in the dust to sit on thrones. Look for God's hand. And as you see God's hand in the Word of God, and if you can see God's hand in Esther, where he is not named once by the name God, by the word Lord, or by the name Jesus, where he's not named once, have we seen the hand of God? You are going to go home some of you are going to go a long way home. You're going to wonder if God is active in your life. You're not going to be able to go out on your porch and look up at the sky and see the clouds form the words, I am with you, Linda. I am with you, Greg. You're not going to be driving to work and hear someone speak to you from the glove compartment. I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee, Jonathan Crosby. And because that doesn't happen, listen, we walk by faith, not by sight right. in the New Testament. See, in the Old Testament, they didn't walk by faith to the degree that the New Testament saints do. I mean, they walked by sight. I mean, a pillar of fire came down at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. How much faith did you need? <laughs> I mean, when you stood at Mount Sinai and the whole place was shaking, the mountains about to fall apart, and there were thunderings and earthquakes and a trumpet waxing louder and louder till you had to plug your ears 
You didn't need much faith. <laughs> You're not going to see God that way. God isn't going to come to you and say, call you by name and say that he's there. You're not going to see a pillar of fire. Do you know what you have to rely on? What you've learned from the book of Esther. Do you know what the book of Esther is? Ten chapters of the providence of God involved in the intimate details of human existence without any specific credit being given to him. You look at your lives, look at yourself in the mirror and say, why do I have such a long nose? Why do I do this to you people? Look in the mirror and whatever features you have, God gave them to you. I preached on that a couple weeks ago. You say, but God didn't tell me he gave me that nose for a purpose. Everything you've received was written in the book of God before he ever created you, and it is there for a purpose. The job you have at the present hour, as you realize that God's providence is real, you're being called by God. And whatever vocation you are in, what purpose does God have for me right here? Look at the person you've married. Look at your children. Look at their abilities. Look at their inabilities. Look at your own inabilities. Look at our church. Look at the average age of our church. Look at the intelligence. Everything. God's hand is there, even though you don't have a message from God that He's there. Just like in the book of Esther, you don't have a word that He was there. But is there anyone here this morning that doesn't believe God was active in the book of Esther? May he bless the preaching of Esther to the encouragement of your hearts to see God's hand in your lives day by day. He's a merciful God. He's a great God. I love him. I'm going to serve him. Serve him with me.